Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Nick Rolnick is a performance trainer, performance enhancement specialist, and physical therapist at his Culture of PT in New York City, where he's making patients stronger and returning them to activities that they know and love. He has a master's in health promotion management from American University and earned his doctorate in physical therapy from Columbia University with honors. Nick helps his patients and clients leverage blood flow restriction, or BFR, to replicate the same type of environment that is recommended to maximize muscle growth and strength. His expertise in BFR has led him to partner with the largest continuing education provider in Europe, Kinesport, where he teaches physiotherapists about the benefits of this modality with their patients. Nick has been published multiple times in peer-reviewed articles, helping the worldwide community of early adopters better understand how to effectively apply this modality in their practices. Visit www.bfrtraining.com for more information. Dr. Nick Rolnick, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Again, thank you so much for the opportunity. I always love being able to speak about things that are very near and dear to my heart, exercise, blood flow restriction training, BFR with exercise. Um, and so, yeah, so this is, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it should be a really fun conversation. I've heard lots of conversations that you've had talking about this and boy, hard to contain your excitement about this topic for sure. I can tell you get really, uh, really animated when you start talking about this. Um, and, and, you know, in the introduction, when we say blood flow restriction, like that is intimidating. That's a really kind of scary thing and probably a good reason why I've been personal training for 15 years. I've heard about blood flow restriction and for some reason it scares the hell out of me. Yeah, BFR for for what it's worth is doesn't have the, the best name for uh, to gain mainstream traction. That's for sure. But I think before we get into the discussion of what is BFR? I think it's it's important that the the listener or the viewer um, we take a step for the listener or the viewer we take a step back and and kind of talk about what my three guiding life principles are because I think that can then help us understand for me you know what I do as a physical therapist and a personal trainer but also just in, in life in general and then we can relate that to blood flow restriction training. I love that. Let's start so, there. And then, yeah, I would love to hear your personal story and how you got into health. And we'll let that uh, guide our conversation all the way to BFR. It'd be great. Yeah. So I, so the first, the first guiding principle for me is that balance is the key to a healthy, pain-free life. Um, without balance, that kind of leads into the second bullet point, which is that uh, pain is just a symptom of a body that is out of balance. Um, and my job that relates to my job as a physical therapist, because I typically see people that are in pain. And so my job is to get them back into balance and out of pain so that they can experience the joy of pain-free movement. Um, and cause that's really what everyone wants, right? They just want to move, move well, and they want to move well without pain. Uh, and then the third pr guiding principle for me is that nothing good happens without consistent, strong effort. And that really relates to blood flow restriction training, but also my life path in general into how I got to where I'm at. So with that being said, blood flow restriction training is very stressful. Um, it's, it's one of those things that if you're not going to put in the effort, then you're probably not going to get the results. And because of that, there is this apprehension of using it just by the name alone, but, um, but yeah, so there's just a ton of different ways in which we can, you know, move forward with this conversation. That's fantastic. And we feel really well aligned with those three principles that you talked about. I think about balance and one example that just came to mind is like anabolism and catabolism. Like we want both of those to be in balance. It's a good thing to grow when we need to grow. But if we're always in a state of growth that, you know, what about like cancer? Cancer is a state of constant growth. Like you have to have those two things in balance. And so I, I really love that. You hit the nail on the head. I, I mean, the, one of the questions that I get when I teach is, is, is like, and, and the things that I've actually become more recently aware of is that chronic elevation of mTOR, the, the same signaling pathway that helps with give, giving us that anabolism. It's the most well-known molecular pathway associated with uh, elevating muscle protein synthesis, but chronically elevated outside of an acute situation 
is actually deleterious to health and well-being. Yeah. So it really goes back to balance. How can we maintain that? And how can we maintain that to pursue a life uh, that is that is free from pain, which is the 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 goal. And so, yeah, um, humans suck at that, dude. If some is good, more is better, bro. Like <laughs> that's, but that's, and that, and that's, and that, yeah, I mean, that's basically, you know, my, for me, listen, I was a competitive bodybuilder, um, back in, in the day and it was always more volume, more volume, more volume and less rest, less rest, less rest. And what I didn't appreciate at that time was that, in order, when we perturb our homeostasis by working hard in the gym, we then need to do the exact opposite, which is give our body time to recover. Because if we don't, well, then we're on this downward path toward injury <clears throat> and pain. Um, so, so it, it really is this delicate balance of, of exercise, but also rest. And I think that that whole analogy can really be applied to a lot of different scenarios. I love that. That is so well explained. I really appreciate that explanation. Tell us a little bit about your personal history. You mentioned you got um, you know in, into bodybuilding, which is fantastic. When did you become super interested in health, and when did you know you wanted to become a physical therapist? Well, I will say that um, you know I had what what I would consider the full college experience. So I went to a small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania, Franklin and Marshall. Uh, I was uh, one of the captains of my baseball team. Um, so I was in a fraternity as well. So I partied hard. I played hard, you know, all of that other stuff. And I never, and I was a bio major. Um, I was always relatively interested in fitness back starting in, in my days playing high school baseball, but also more importantly, or more specifically for, for that passion was wrestling. Um, and, and I was humbled time and time again with, with wrestling. And, you know, it's something that if I ever have kids, I would be honored for, uh, my son or daughter to, to actually experience that because it really is the example of you, you really need to work hard consistently over a long period of time in order to even get that two minutes of success on the, on the wrestling mat. Well, technically six minutes, but you, you get what I'm saying. So yeah, I graduated college and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I party. My GPA was below a three, 3.0. Um, and my mom, uh, out of the blue, she's like, you need to get a job. Like, you're not just gonna, you're just not going to graduate and, and, you know, do nothing. Uh, so she found a, an ad in Craigslist for an aid in a physical therapy clinic in Greenwich, Connecticut. And she said, I think you should try this out. And so I was like, all right, I have no other options, whatever. And I went to that clinic and that was the first time I was really exposed to physical therapy. Um, and it was, it was within four months of that where I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is awesome. Like you can, you can help people get back from, you know, injury or, or surgery and get them back to the activities that they love to do, which is super rewarding. But at the time, I really didn't have any option of going back to school to, for physical therapy because my grades were too low. So then I started to work full time. I took post-bac classes at night and I did that for over a year. And then I decided that to make my, myself a better candidate, I would apply for a master's degree program uh, at American University. And that was actually mutually beneficial, uh, like very beneficial on a number of different uh, aspects, because the first aspect was it helped me get my grades up. But the second aspect, the second aspect was I was able to manage a gym. So now I was able to look at managing student employees, but also dealing with the intricacies of equipment repair, which I don't know if you're familiar, like it is a nightmare. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. And then, and then I also was able to intern for, for a year plus, uh, with the division one strength coaches. So that really fostered my, my love of performance even though I, I never really were, was truly exposed to like high level strength and conditioning. So it was like, oh my gosh. And, and that kind of gave me the motivation to continue to push forward. And I recognized in my master's degree program that like we can take this same stuff, which, you know, I initially applied there because I saw that the physical therapist has a lot of time with the patient in this clinic. It was out of network. So you saw the patient 
patients for 30 minutes and then they were in the clinic for an hour, but they were working with an aide or a PTA or something like that for the rest of the, the time there. But it was a lot of time that there was just spent talking, like massage, talking, like whatever. And I recognized that you know, the physical therapist is in a position to help foster healthy behaviors, right? Not just, oh, you're injured, but really to try to put the, 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 the patient on, you know, making the right steps forward to make significant health behavior decisions that can impact their life well beyond just a course of physical therapy. And that's really what the master's degree was about. It was about understanding the psychological uh, reasoning, why people make health behavior decisions that might be against their best interest, and then trying to circumvent that with strategies. And that was leveraged with, with my, with me as a personal trainer. Um, so, so yeah. And then I went to Columbia after that, I was fortunate enough. And, and at that point I knew that I was like, Oh, this is what exactly, you know, that I really wanted to do. And along the way, as I mentioned, I, uh, I started to really get into fitness, um, because, I didn't know if I was going to be a physical therapist. So I was like, all right, well, the rite of passage of personal trainers, at least at the gyms that I was at was you had to compete. If you didn't compete, you did not, you didn't like go through the journey of, <laughs> of being a personal trainer um, without that. And so I competed a couple of times, uh, three times actually, and, re- and retired on top. I won the last show that I was in. It was a small show, um, but, but yeah. And then that kind of all on the way just fostered my, my desire to learn more about exercise and, and rehabilitation. And that's kind of where I found blood flow restriction training That's amazing. because as a bodybuilder, right. Bodybuilders are going to do anything for gains, right? I mean, literally, I think two years ago, there was a segment on the news saying that breast, they were looking for breast milk because it had a, a ton of hormones. I remember that. Um, so breast, there was a breast. Yeah. Right. So, so occlusion training at the time was what I called it or what it was called. But I was like, oh, well, this is like nothing. All right. Just wrap a therapy, you know, wrap a band around my arm and just get a, get a nasty pump. And, uh, and yeah, I picked it up for a little bit. It was painful. I was like, I don't know, you know, uh, maybe. And then I kind of dropped it until the second year of PT school, when I started to uh, read more and more research on it, just fortuitously in the strength in journal strength and conditioning research. And then all of a sudden at that point, it was like hundred percent in. Like I just became a sponge and trying to understand as much as I possibly could about blood flow restriction training. But the cool thing about blood flow restriction training is that it touches on so many different areas. It touches on cardiovascular responses. It touches on hemodynamics. So blood pressure, it targets on perceptual, like what causes exertion? Um, how does that, how does that process happen? Biology. So what happens to signal to the brain that a stressful bout of exercise is occurring? So I started to get into all of these rabbit holes that furthered my understanding of exercise and strength and conditioning and rehabilitation in general. And it's just been a whirlwind since like, I, I just, I wake up every morning and I love what I do. Um, I just so happen to make a living out of it. But I, I mean, I'm, I, I teach undergrad, um, I, which I, I used to teach master's degree and PhD level exercise physiology, anatomy, and kinesiology. Wow. Um, and I see patients that are injured, post-surgical patients. I see people that are looking to push their physique to the next level, their performance to the next level. Like I... Uh, and then I write research, but, you know, and then I collaborate with other researchers to try to push forward our understanding of blood flow restriction training. So I love what I do. It is an absolute blessing to be where I'm at. And this is really, to me personally, like just the start of my journey. Like, I mean, I've been at this, you know, for over five years, but it, there's a saying, it's like, it takes, it takes so much work, right? Paraphrasing here to become an overnight an overnight celebrity or overnight sensation, right? You just put yourself in the position to perform. And that position may take years and years and years and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours, but it puts you to be able to perform when you need to perform. And, and that is kind of why it relates to my, my third principle, which is, you know, nothing good happens without a strong, consistent effort because, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be where I'm at. And then that just happens to relate to 
blood flow restriction training, because if you're not, if you're not feeling the metabolic burn, the stress of exercise, like that lactic acid burn, well, then you're not doing enough. That's right. You're not doing enough and you're not going to get a benefit. That's right. Wow. Well, I, I'm so glad you made that final point because that is so apparent from your story. You did not mention very many endpoints of, I got to X place and I won such and such. And that was it. What I heard a ton of was the process. You talked about, you know, wrestling. You didn't say you won a bunch of wrestling matches. You said you practice every single day for years and years and years. I see so few people willing to go through that type of process to get really, really good at something. And it's just like the war of art stuff by Stephen Pressfield. It's like, are you an amateur or are you a professional? An amateur plays basketball when they want to because it's fun or whatever. A professional practices every single day because it's what they do. It's their craft. And they're going to keep honing their craft for the rest of their lives. And I, I, that shines through so much in your story and so much in your passion. So I really, really appreciate that. Before we really deep dive into BFR, I want to go back to our introduction and say, this is a, a skill that can help us maximize muscle growth and strength. And if I'm an average listener, I might just say, okay, well, he's talking about bodybuilding. This is talking about maximizing muscle growth and strength. That's not me. I don't need to worry about that. I'm a 40-year-old mom. Why would I care about muscle mass? Can you please tell us why having muscle mass and being strong is so important? Yeah, I think I, I think that is probably the most common misconception beyond, oh, I'm going to lift to get, I want to get toned and not put on, it makes no sense. Um, what we have to appreciate is that muscle is a hugely important organ that helps us regulate our systemic inflammation, right? If we have so much body fat, body fat re releases these, these chemicals, hormones called adipokines. And these are inflammatory markers that circulate the blood and make it harder for us to, for example, heal from an injury or a host of any other negative, more likely to suffer from chronic pain. These are all things that can happen just from having more body fat. Now, if you take in the other hand and you have muscle, muscle, particularly when we exercise, releases hormones and growth mediators called myokines. And myokines are the anti-adipokines. They increase the anti-inflammatory effects that are being caused by excessive fat uh, in, in the body. And then we also have bone that releases osteokines. So we have all of these different um, mediators that are influenced in one way or another from the lack of or are a greater degree of physical activity. And when I think of physical activity, yeah, it could be walking, could be just being active, whatever. But really at the end of the day, what I'm thinking of physical activity is targeted resistance training and targeted aerobic exercise, because both of them have been shown to upregulate those anti-inflammatory markers associated with the muscle and associated with the bone and mitigate those anti uh, those inflammatory markers associated with the body fat. And so it's not the, the, the aesthetics, right? The bodybuilders, they obviously take the aesthetics to the extreme. The aesthetics in my true, honest opinion are just a bonus. They are, they are something that we can, we can say, oh, after we've, you know, suffered through resistance training for, uh, you know, four to six months, and we've really pushed ourselves hard on the majority of the sets that we're doing, and we were consistent about it, then we can get some muscle mass, right? But, but at the end of the day, it's really just about that muscle can help us become a better human can help us move faster, can help us be healthier and reduce our risk of a ton of different chronic diseases that are in, that are absolutely devastating our healthcare system. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was such a good explanation. And if, again, if the average listener doesn't think that being faster or being stronger or whatever that you just explained isn't important, think about this when you're 60, when you're 80, when you want to pick up your grandkid, when you want to get up off the ground or get up out of a chair or not be in a goddamn nursing home when you're 70. Like your muscle, in my opinion, is your savings account for your future. And, and you should invest now for later because it's going to be even harder as you age. 
Bingo. Um, that's almost literally what, how I how I describe that um, to to new clients and new patients <clears throat> is that when we age, aging by itself is is associated with infl- you know an increase in systemic inflammation. So all we should be in do, we should be incorporating strategies that can reduce that amount of inflammation that we're experiencing, of which, you know, the primary way in which we can do that is through our nutrition, but also through exercise. And my role as a physical therapist, personal trainer, or the human performance mechanic is to, you know, where I go and I'm basically my whole thing is, yeah, I want to be my, my clients, my patients to be in balance. Well, my job is because pain is just a symptom of a body out of balance. My job is to look for the cause of the pain and not necessarily just treat the pain, right? Because at the end of the day, there, there is this imbalance of which in a setting like dealing with the older adult who might not be exercising enough, they just literally just might be weak, and need to put on more muscle, but you're right because it does get harder to put on muscle the longer uh, the longer that we go without it, due to like what you said before, just chronically elevated mTOR in general. So there is this 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 ridiculous you know feedback loop that um, that continues to get altered as we age. But what we can do when we're younger is try to stimulate as much of uh, muscle mass as we could possibly, you know, have not for the aesthetics, but to put more deposits into the savings account Mm. so we can withdraw later. Well, thank you for explaining that. I really appreciate that. This is where I lose my mind. Like this happened just this week when one of my clients sent me this article. I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And it's like, these are the seven signs that you're not getting or you're getting too much protein in your diet. And it's seven of the most ridiculous symptoms you've ever heard. And the recommendation for adults should be about 50 grams of protein a day, mostly soy sources, plant sources, like... no, absolutely not. That is ridiculous. I, I just, I can't even on things like that. I, I, you mentioned the nutrition piece and I think that's so critical with all of this as well. But anyway, let's, let's dive into BFR for somebody who has no idea what this is. How would you explain it to somebody? Well, the first, the first approach for me would be to, to try to relate it to something that they may have some familiarity with. And for most people, that is, I ask them, they, they, most people are familiar with that famous SNL skit, the Hans and Franz, I will bump you up, right? <laughs> nice. Have you, have you, have you seen, have oh, you yeah. seen that skit? Oh yeah. Okay. So, so that was based on, um, on making fun of Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the seventies, because Arnold was all about the pump, right? And the pump for people that are not familiar, the pump is this feeling of fullness within the exercising muscle that was originally thought to only be possible through medium or through moderate to heavy load strength training. And so people were mocking Arnold, uh, but he was really onto something because the pump is the physical manifestation that we are perturbing our homeostasis enough, particularly with resistance exercise, to induce positive benefit over a chronic training program. So it's, it's Arnold, Arnold kind of was the pioneer of the pump. And unfortunately though, when we're injured for, or are following surgery or for one reason or another, where it might not necessarily be uh, safe to lift moderate to heavy loads. Well, then people are like, Oh, I can't lift moderate to heavy loads. I'm done. But recently now the research has shown that you can even get similar benefits of heavy load strength training on muscle mass, which is the most important thing, but also secondarily strength because that has a relationship to function, right? Um, as heavy load, uh, using light loads uh, as heavy loads. And unfortunately though, when you use light loads, it takes a very long time to be able to get that benefit. So what we can do with BFR is we basically replicate the pump using uh, a cuff that we apply to the arm or the leg. And that basically allows us to get the same benefits as moderate to heavy strength training, but without all of the time needed to, to fatigue. Cause if I give you a five pound bicep, you know, and say five pounds and you say, Oh, do bicep curls. You're going to be there for 15, 20 minutes, but with BFR, you're going to be, you know, three minutes and you're going to be done. 
right? So that allows us to harness the power of the pump, right? And a superficial level to gain the same benefits, much like Arnold was saying in the seventies, I would pump you up, right? It's really true. That's why, you know, my focus is when I talk to people about BFR, it's all about chasing the pump because once we have that pump, that is the, that is the physical sign that something good is happening in our body to make us a better human at the end of the day. Interesting. Okay. Also very well explained. So if somebody's listening to this and thinking like, okay, I'm bought in, that sounds great. I would love to be more efficient with my workouts. I would love to, you know, get those signals into my body so it can start to create those adaptations. How, how do they approach BFR in it, in a way that's safe? Do they need to be working with a practitioner? Does the practitioner need to make sure that they're well certified in this, or at least well educated? How do you approach that? That's a great, great question. Um, I think, I think for the average gym goer, um, it's important to get some sort of guidance from a trained practitioner, um, only because what we're doing with that cuff is we're in essence up, applying a tourniquet to your arm or your leg. And a tourniquet is designed to restrict blood flow. Now, some of these are medical grade devices, right? That can do that, but some of these aren't. And so if you go and get the cheap devices off of Amazon or, you know, any, any other of the, the, the discount sites, you're not going to be able to really harness the power, uh, the true power of blood flow restriction training. So for me, when, when we talk about a tourniquet, especially in the rehab setting, right, where people are presenting with comorbidities like diabetes, hypertension, um, obesity, these are all conditions that can change our body's response to exercise in general. But then we basically put exercise on turbocharge when we add the restriction cuff, because then that then basically takes the amount of repetitions that would be needed in order to get that hypertrophic effect and goes slams them together. So instead of taking, you know, 75 reps, it might take you 35 reps, right? So it's still, you're still exercising a decent amount, but it now becomes more practical. So yeah, I mean, I recommend that uh, at the bare minimum, people are reading a couple of, uh, of, of papers that might not necessarily be scientific papers, but something of, from a reputable source that they're at least not going in blind. Because although BFR training is well tolerated in the vast majority of people, there are a small subset of population populations that um, may have an exaggerated response to BFR, meaning that they might elevate their blood pressure might go way too high, which is probably the, the primary concern um, of mine on a widespread uh, application um, uh, of BFR. So they're better off, you know, kind of if you're concerned in any way, shape or form to try to go to a certified provider. And the next question you're going to ask is, oh, where can I find a certified provider? Exactly. Well, Exactly my next question. Well, we, so at my second company, the company that goes in and has relationships in, in Europe, the BFR Pros, um, we're all about um, the safe growth of blood flow restriction training. And, you know, I don't have any relationships with any cuff manufacturers or anything other than they supply the, our courses with their product. So what we want to do is just make sure that people are going to providers that have had some post-professional education. And as a fitness professional, you are most certainly able to do blood flow restriction training. Um, in fact, my course that I, I was, was partly designed for the fitness professional. But anyways, um, www.bfrproviders.com. This is a geolocation database all around the world. It's international. Um, so anywhere in the world, you can type in your zip code and certified providers are, are listed there. These are anybody that um, they have to upload their certification. So there is a vetting process. So it's not just anybody can go on. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of the answer there. So at least, you know, typically when I work with people that are, are wanting to do blood flow restriction, they come in for about, I do a five pack. So I do two sessions in the first week to make sure that they're able to do BFR. And then I'll see them uh, once a month after that for three months. So they're, um, they're at least within my orbit and um, they're able to demonstrate competency in understanding what they should be looking for and should not be looking for in the sense of, of, of potential um, negative uh, effects. But that's been, you know, pretty successful in my own practice. Um, and I haven't really had anybody that, um, 
that has had any negative, you know, effects from it. Fascinating. So that's it really, a, yeah. That's a really cool way to set it up though. So two times in the first week is sufficient enough to take somebody again, like off the street and teach them enough of the basics that they can then go and do it on their own and come back for like, let's, let's double check. Let's make sure your forms good. Let's make sure everything's correct. That's, that's, that's accurate. Yeah. So I typically, so, so yeah, there's some nuance to that, of course, but in, in, in large part, um, that first two sessions in the first week serves a couple of things. The first one is a medical screening, right? So you're going to a provider who is using some sort of screening process to assess the relative risk of you potentially having a negative reaction to blood flow restriction training. Is it, is it possible? Yeah. Is it likely? No. But there's still the chance. And so it's important to go to somebody who is very familiar with you know, the, the medical considerations to, to, to make in order to make sure that you're effectively, you're, you know, you're a, you're a candidate for BFR. And then the first session is all about instructing them on how to apply the cuff, what to look for, and then obviously exercising, doing one or two exercises in a modified protocol. And why a modified protocol? Because the, the, the safety risk of BFR training is magnified in the first couple of sessions. And that typically um, is due to the fact that when you're putting the blood pressure cuff, if you want to think of it like that, um, like the cuff on your arm or your leg, well, you're creating a, re a reduction in, in oxygen in the exercising limb. And as such, that reduction in oxygen triggers a whole cascade of intracellular changes that cause in like that cause muscle damage, like actual damage to the muscle cell. Um, so if you do too much of it, too soon, you've now gone from zero to a hundred instead of going zero to 10, 20 to 30 to 40, 50, and then a hundred. So your body is un, is not able to, uh, to upregulate the cellular defenses that are needed in order to provide a, a safe outcome. And so there's a much more elevated risk of of increasing muscle damage markers of which the worst case is rhabdomyolysis, which is a medical emergency. So that first, that, so the first session is all about that. And the second session is meeting them in the same week to say, Hey, how did it go? How are you feeling to then have them take me through their routine, which for me, a lot of the routines are simple right? Isolation exercises to start because I want them to get comfortable with it. And then we can progress to multi-joint because once you're at multi-joint, there's a lot more chance to compensate because the cuff disproportionately fatigues the muscles that are distal to it. So if you're doing exercises like the biceps and triceps, it's great because the vast majority of the muscle bulk is located distal to the cuff. <clears throat> forearms is even better, right? The whole muscle is on there. But if you're trying to do things like rows or bench press or squats or deadlifts, where you're now incorporating muscles that are proximal to the cuff, you can create a disproportionate fatigue stimulus and thus form ends up becoming a, a huge factor. Like, you know, it's hard to do without a demonstration, but basically a squat turns into a deadlift because they can't bend their knees because yeah. their quads are so fatigued. So now all of a sudden they're shifting it. So if me as a physical therapist and a personal trainer, like I don't want people to be practicing a squat and they end up doing a hip hinge, right? Like I want to facilitate proper neuromuscular coordination as best I can and give them constraints in the exercise to do exactly what I want. So I am a huge fan of machines, for multi-joint exercise because they can just focus on point A to point B, like extending their hip and extending their knee without having to worry about torso position and, and all that. So the second session is just review. And then after that, it's just tweaking. And then, cause I give them a program and then it's just tweaking it and staying in contact, uh, you know, once a week, once every other week or whatever. And then they run their, their three month program. Yeah. Fascinating. I, that is very well explained and very well designed. Um, I absolutely love that. I, I wonder, you mentioned a little bit, the medical intake, there's gotta be like kind of that, the, you know, the U curve or whatever, where it feels like 
80% of people that come to you, this is going to be like just totally fine. This is totally safe. You're going to get good results. That's fine. There may be some on one end of the curve that's like, ah, we need to be really careful. There might be the other end of the curve that you're thinking like, wow, this person needs to get on this like as soon as possible. So can you tell us who would be like contraindicated and you need to be careful or avoid it at least for now? And who would be like, you are absolutely a great candidate to do this. Great question. Um, so I would say, let's start out with the people that, um, might not be the best candidates. Um, so I've published, um, a couple of articles that look at the safety screening process and to boil it down to the most simplistic sense, really the common comorbidities, particularly the ones that are, are very, um, like high in, in meaning like hypertension. Like if you're just borderline hypertension, hypertensive, or, or even like level one hypertensive, like you can do BFR and there's ways to safely perform it. You know, just go to a certified provider like that, like myself or anybody else that that's confident in their ability to manipulate the variables. But as you start to accumulate more comorbidities, so hypertension, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, um, uh, did I say obesity? I, you know, the, the, there are really four or five, um, major ones. And then obviously cancer and, and like, if you have like just unexplained swelling in the limb already, you have peripheral vascular disease, like you're already ischemic. But I will say that a lot of the contraindications that have been existing are, are tourniquet contraindications and not necessarily specific to blood flow restriction training. So for example, those, those that might have peripheral arterial disease, there was a paper that was published in Cell in 2020 that actually kind of overlapped the stimulus that blood flow restriction provides and the sequela of peripheral arterial disease. And they actually hypothesized that BFR might actually be a treatment for peripheral arterial disease because the reperfusion, right? There's a couple of ways in which BFR can induce a a cardiovascular benefit. One of which, which is ischemic ischemia reperfusion. And that basically is we're creating an oxygen starved environment. And as such, the body is like, I need to get oxygenated blood into that area. So this, this blood, it goes, it goes very fast into the limb. And that creates this shear stress that is picked up by the endothelial cells that line the arteries. And they then release these vasodilatory growth factors that can also stimulate the production of, of new arteries and new microvasculature. It's called angiogenesis. So it's, it, you know, there's a ton of cool things that, that you can, you know, apply with BFR. So my contraindications um, and, and the work that I've been doing is, yes, it's a little bit more conservative, but in practice, um, as long as you're with somebody who is certified, who is actually taking a stepwise approach to BFR, meaning they're not throwing you into the gauntlet to doing failure exercises with, with a back squat of, you know, 30% of your one rep max on day one, and they're just progressing you up. So maybe you start out with short arc quads, which is just small range of motion knee extensions, followed by long arc quads. And then you have, you know, mini squats to full squats and loaded squats, like, and you're tolerating that. And you're not having any changes in your vasculature, for example, like varicosities, varicose veins. So those spider veins, particularly not the ones that are just like the little fragile ones, but the ones that are um, the ones that are like spidery, like very superficial. They suggest a compromised venous system. You might want to avoid BFR. Um, So it really just it really just depends. Um, but yeah, I would say that those are the major ones, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, like significant cardiovascular disease. But with that being said, there was just a paper that had, that, that was looking at the, the use of blood flow restriction training in individuals with heart failure Mm. and why that's potentially beneficial is that when you have this reduced exercise capacity and you have this systemic inflammation, Blood flow restriction training by reducing the amount of blood flow that the heart has to pump, it's called preload, right? The amount that that the ends up back in the ventricle for it to pump through to the body. Well, that then actually relieves stress on the heart that's failing while giving you an intense 
exercise beyond what you would normally be able to do. And they've been, sh- they've shown very positive benefits in, the, in that cohort of population. So I think right now in the research and in the literature in general, we're very cautious because, and I'm okay with that because we want to safely grow BFR. But in general, I would actually extend that to, I would say 90% of the people that come through my door, I'd be comfortable with using blood flow restriction training um, on. And, you know, 10%, I would say we got to find something else to be able to do. So more, more people than you would think sure. could be a great BFR uh, training candidate. Interesting. And it's so funny, like all of those, you know, disorders that you're talking about are very much metabolic in nature. And we know that about 90% of Americans and probably greater than that are metabolically unhealthy to begin with. And yet still they're able to see the benefits that your explanation of the blood vessels and the heart and the periphery, I think is fantastic. I can see how that would be of such a benefit to increase circulation. That makes a lot of sense to me. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, on the opposite end, the people who are like, you should do this like yesterday, you are a very, very good candidate candidate. Who are the best candidates for this? So, yeah, I think there's a couple of populations that, um, that could really benefit from the use of blood flow restriction training. The first one would be that ex athlete or exercise enthusiast that, um, you know, has a lot of aches and pains when they, when you lift with them, moderate to heavy weights. And, you know, like the next day they're like, Oh, my knees hurt. So I can't squat again or, or do leg extensions or whatever. Um, uh, they're an excellent candidate. So you can lower the weights, you can give them the same benefits, but also because blood flow restriction training has a very potent analgesic effect. So pain relieving effect that you can actually set them up to not only get that muscle mass and strength, but also to give them some pain relief from that ache, from that ache that they're experiencing and keeping them, them healthy. Cause the last thing that we want as, as exercisers, but certainly personal trainers um, is for our clients to get injured. And now all of a sudden they can't train because we both know if they can't train and, and we don't have the session, we don't make our, we don't have any income. So it's that's always something that's, yeah, it's that's, our whole business. that's always something to, to really consider. Um, also for, for the, uh, older adult. So the older adult in order to combat, combat osteosarcopenia, which is the loss of muscle mass and the loss of bone mass. Um, as we age, um, we already know that we, we lose a couple of percentages of muscle mass, uh, just, just as we age, just, it's, it's a byproduct of that. Um, so as we mentioned before with the savings account, the more that we can put them up, uh, to give them a higher ceiling or more deposits in their safe in their savings, the better they're going to be. But that still doesn't mean that we can't challenge them as much as possible. Like we would with our younger patients, cause they still can respond to exercise. It's just in a slightly blunted uh, blunted fashion. So BFR can help give them the same benefits as higher intensity strength training, but without all the load in the joints. And particularly, you know, even if they don't have any joint pain or, or anything, but they might be a balance risk. So you wouldn't want to have them do, you know, un- you know, not supported exercise, then BFR would be a great opportunity uh, to, to put on some muscle in their arms and in their legs. And then lastly, the in-season athlete. Um, the in-season athlete uh, is is one that, you know, you want to maintain the muscle mass, you want to maintain strength throughout the season, but you might not necessarily want to put heavy weight on the, the body for one reason or another. Um, that, in conjunction with the use of BFR during aerobic training, what we're finding is, is that there's only so much that you're going to be able to uh, add in terms of volume, low intensity volume for your cycling or your running before it just becomes impractical. What's cool is we can actually do so much less with BFR and even take them to the next level because we're creating this very hypoxic uh, restrictive stimulus that is forcing higher degrees of, of vascular stimulation, which peripherally can help with buffering the metabolites that are produced from higher intensity exercise. And at the same time, if we're working hard enough, we can then get central adaptations, like I said before, with the heart failure example, but we can also uh, improve our stroke volume, which is just the amount of blood that's pumped per heartbeat, right? So now we're more efficient. So there's a number of different ways in which we can purposefully integrate blood flow restriction training into a training program of somebody who is healthy. 
Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Um, tell us a little bit about what are the best exercises specifically? We've talked about working the arms, working the legs. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about deadlifting and why that may or may not be the best idea. What, what exercises are best? I, I operate by the principle, the, the keep it simple, stupid, the kiss principle. Thank you. And, and so there's no need to create more complexity when you don't need to. Um, so we know that blood flow restriction training induces a disproportionate amount of fatigue on the muscles that are distal to the, to the cuff. So that means that the most effective stimulus is going to be isolation exercises, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't do compound exercises. I am personally biased toward uh, machine-based exercise just because of what we know about strength training in general. The more complex that we make a task, and that there's a lot of ways to make a task complex. I can tell you to do a math problem while you're doing an exercise, or I can put a BOSU ball underneath your, your uh, legs as you squat, or I can have you do another task that, um, or, or increase the, the, uh, the mental aspect of it or the cognitive load or have you do a number of different things, blindfold you. Like there's a couple stupid ways to make it more complex. And that actually reduces the potential overload that you can experience. So if we can then go make it as simple as possible and as simple as possible is just using machines, to be honest, because that that's a fixed plane of motion. And that allows us to just focus on moving that the, the joint from point A to point B. And that's the only thing that they're focusing on. Well, now all of a sudden we have more mental and neural drive in that area. So we're activating the muscle fibers to a greater degree. And then we're able to get the hypertrophic benefit that we seek, which again, I say hypertrophic, but that just means that the muscle is actually getting a benefit of which one of them is an increase in muscle size. And okay, so if I look back on my career, a majority of my career, I would have said like, uh, I don't think so. We need the BOSUs. We need to be jumping around. We need to mimic whatever your sport is in the gym. And it wasn't until several years ago that I came across a book, Body by Science, I'm sure you'll be very familiar with it by Doug McGuff, uh-huh. that, that talks about, you know, what what is exercise actually, why we should use machines, why moving at a slow tempo versus moving at a fast tempo can really maximize your benefits in the minimal amount of time. And I don't use his protocol every single time with all of my clients all the time, but it just shifted my thinking into like, why are we putting people through so much risk of injury, jumping around, hopping around, doing all these weird things that are bound to get them injured? we're We're not helping people. We can put people in extremely safe environments like machines, which I love, and we can train people very safely and very effectively. I'm so glad you brought that up. Because you're describing the difference between workout and a training session. Yeah. A workout, a workout is designed to burn calories. It's not that focused. The sole goal is for you to sweat and, and, and burn calories. Training is a, a, a specific and purposeful application of exercise, whether that's resistance training or that's cardiovascular exercise that is designed for achieving a particular goal. And that's the difference. So if our goal is to stimulate overload, particularly of the muscle, then I want to make sure that I'm putting my client or my patient in the best position for them to achieve their goals. And machines are definitely one of the top, the top choices. And I agree with you early on in my career, when I didn't have an understanding of the physiologic underpinnings of what is a good hypertrophic stimulus? I would, I would have agreed with you. Bosu ball, maybe practicing the sport, but but what we need to do as providers of health that that encompasses fitness professionals, rehab professionals, um, and anyone in between is we just want to make sure we're putting people in the position that they can achieve success. And what success looks like is going to be different from person A to person B. And that is the fun of working with a variety of different people is because not everybody's going to have that goal of being the most jack human in, in the building. Yeah. So it's, it's really just, it's, it's awesome. But the same principles govern 
how you're going to, to approach that problem. The principles don't change. The application might change, but the principles should be saying the same. Yep. Totally, totally, totally. And I would get pushback on this and people would say, well, I love my step class where we kind of dance around and do all these different step moves. And I love my spinning class and I love, you know, these, these other workouts. And it's like, that that's great. Like, if you want to go do that, go do that. But you really need to choose. Do you want that workout where you're getting the sweat on your social with your friends, whatever? Do you want the workout or do you want the results? Choose one because they're not necessarily correlated with each other. And I think it's really important for people to really consider, like, if you've done those workout programs or not programs you've done all these workouts before did they actually get you the results you want or did they cause you to sweat a lot and breathe a lot and crave sugar a lot like come on like if you want the well, results you've got to follow the rules and that's it and then this circles then back to what we talked about early on which is rest is the period of time that we need because that's going to help us create that super compensation effect which will make us better, faster, stronger humans. Yep. And workouts where the primary goal is I'm trying to put that person through the ringer is not the same as a targeted session to build muscle yep. because there is periods of strong exertion followed by no exertion because yep. you're resting. Rest. Because, and, and it's respecting the, the physiology of how we adapt. And sometimes we don't want rest. So for example, if we're looking to improve our cardiovascular capacity, right, we might want to program bouts of long, slow exercise, right? 45 minutes to an hour versus, you know, again, there's many ways to skin a cat. I can then say, all right, maybe I want to do 15, 15, 45. So one to three work to rest interval. And we're going to work as hard as we possibly can for 15 seconds. And then we're going to rest for 45 seconds or even maybe rest for 90 seconds, right? It just depends on what's the quality that we're looking to, um, that we're looking to get with consistent, strong effort over a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Very well explained. I love that, man. This has been awesome before, um, before we send the listeners over to you and, and find out where they can go to you. I, I, I have to say, I, I know you feel this as a personal trainer. You've probably gotten this a lot. Somebody gets injured. They go to the physical therapist. They come back with a few sheets of paper and it's like chair exercises and you know, some band external rotations and all the stuff that these people are not going to do anyway, they go in and it's like there's little stations and you spend five minutes over here with the e-stim and then you do, you know, 20 minutes on a bike for like, you know, I, I remember having to do the bike when I broke my collarbone <laughs> and it's like, what, what is this? Okay. Like that's fine. But what is, how does this help with my collarbone? The, the, the typical experience I see most people go through is vastly, vastly different than what you're describing. And to feel your passion and your desire to help people and your three pillars that we talked about in the very beginning of really educating people um, in a different way, not just with this is going to get you healthy you know, from this injury, but we're, we're actually going to make your life better. We're going to make you healthier overall. Using that approach, how much it's an obvious question because you already said how much you love your job. How much does this impact your quality of life knowing that you're helping people on such a level that's like off the charts based on what most people experience? I mean, I've, uh, I love it. I mean, I, I literally live and breathe this stuff um, almost 24 uh, seven. And so it really is rewarding to, to just try to share knowledge. And I think education is such an important and vastly underutilized approach to helping people make better health behavior, you know, decisions for themselves, because they're going to actually understand why they're doing what they're doing. Not just, I've been told by my physical therapist to do this. And I think that your example of what you said about sheets of exercise reigns true a hundred percent, which is sad because it's a, it's a terrible reflection of what physical therapy can be at its best. For me, my role as a physical therapist, especially when I'm collaborating with a personal trainer is to find pockets of movement that they can do very well. And have them continue to do that while we work on other things that might not necessarily be as top notch, but my job is to say, all right, say you can deadlift 400 and say you normally can deadlift 600 pounds and you know, now you're injured. My job is to keep you deadlifting 
in any way, shape, or form. Because if that's what you love to do, my job is to help you get back to the activities that you love to do as quickly as possible. So where I get really, really, really upset with physical therapists in general is they give you a prescription that is just generic. It's not individualized to who you are as a person, what your capabilities are and your potential injury. Because I've seen people that have gotten the same sheets of paper for different conditions. And you're just like, wait a second, that's, that's like not worth it. Plus the way that I approach physical therapy is I try to give one exercise. What is the one exercise that you're, that's going to be able to give you the benefits that you're looking for? Because the research suggests that as soon as you give two and three exercise, compliance rapidly drops. I want them to just be empowered with their health and be able to understand why we're doing what we're doing and show them cause and effect. And that is physical therapy at its best. And by no means am I, you know, uh, you know, the best or, or at what I do, or I just, I just have a system and I follow that system and I help way more people than I can. Do I help everybody? Absolutely not. But I, I, I at least try to foster a network that I can, I can refer out to people that might have a slightly different approach than me because my approach is not going to work for everybody. If anybody says that their approach works for everybody, they're, they're full of crap. Um, so humanity in general, we're so different. We're so diverse. We have all these different experiences and we have to recognize that our experiences are going to shape um, you know, our perception of what we're doing with exercise, what we're doing, you know, with our interactions with other humans. And so you're, you're, you're not going to help, you know, everybody, but my goal is to try to help eight to nine people out of 10 that come into my office. And for those one or two people that I can't help to get them the help that they need as soon as possible. When I find out that what we're doing is not going to be able to get them to get them back to the activities that they love as quickly as possible. Cause at the end of the day, it's just about the patient, the client in front of you and trying to help them become a better human. Amazing. And I would venture to guess that those people that maybe you weren't able to help still walk away from that conversation thinking, wow, Dr. Nick really helped me. He really cared. He really gave a shit. He cared. And I, I just, I feel that so much from you from this conversation. This has been amazing. Other questions we had, um, you know, people can go to the website, obviously, to learn about, you know, what style of cuff, what kind of protocols you recommend. There's a lot to continue to dig in here, but we're, we're just so grateful for everything that we've learned today. Where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work? I think the easiest place for people to go and connect with me would be on my Instagram. It's just the HPM short for the human performance mechanic, which is the public facing name of the culture of PT. Um, you know, uh, uh, physical therapy and personal training practice that I have. Um, I'm very active on Instagram. They can clearly look and see a lot of the science behind not just aesthetics and bodybuilding, um, and blow flow restriction training, but rehabilitation in general, um, just very passionate about those three domains um, because we really are facing an overweight and obesity crisis in our country that has likely been accelerated even further from sedentarism following you know COVID-19 uh, and, and isolation. So I'm very passionate about trying to help people achieve their goals. So if there's anybody that listens to this podcast that's like, I want to make a change, I want to be a better human, well then please feel free to DM me, mention this podcast. I'd be happy to try to help you and get get one foot in front of the other and make the changes needed in order for you to achieve that goal. That's amazing. So that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Nick Rolnick, thank you so very much for focusing on the journey, focusing on growth um, rather than having a fixed mindset. Thank you for bringing your passion, not only to your patients, your clients, but to us here on the show today. I am walking away from this, certainly have learned a lot and I really appreciate all the, the thoughtfulness that you put behind this. So thank you so very much for everything you've done. And thank you for appearing on our show today. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much again. Really appreciate the opportunity. Such an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.
As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Balanced Body Radio.